Hi. Uh, it's the first episode back after the sheer force of Steven Seagal's Life and Times knocked us for a six. <laughs> the vibes were simply too powerful and we had to take some time off to recuperate. But we're back and ready to fist fight a million martial arts guys. Uh, it's also the 10th episode of the season, so we're obviously going to look at something that turns 10 this year. Now, I've got to confess, uh, my memory is not super good in the sense that I've never had a particularly strong handle on the concept of time. When did something happen? Was it yesterday? Was it four months ago? Who could possibly say? <laughs> so what happened in 2011 that was important? I had to Google a list. The only thing that really stood out was uh, that 2011 was the year that Charlie Sheen had that huge meltdown and was fired from his extremely high-paying job on the sitcom Two and a Half Men, which is sort of like a weird blip in the cultural radar where the phrases used by a man clearly in the midst of a drug and alcohol-related breakdown somehow slipped into the cultural lexicon and suddenly everyone was saying things like tiger blood and winning. Which, now that I'm writing it out, is probably a pretty interesting indictment of the human race, but I don't have the emotional bandwidth to talk about the ways we report on mental illness and celebrity right now. So instead, I cast my net a little further around and I realized that there is another extremely important event that happened in 2011. The release of a viral video hit that would unite people across the internet in a whirlwind of digital criticism. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about Friday by Rebecca Black. Sometimes I think about how the internet works now, and I'm like, thank God I'm not 13. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to thank God that I'm not 13. Puberty sucks. Um, if anyone listening remembers me at 13, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> Uh, but, like, when I was 13, puberty didn't have the potential to be unforgivingly immortalized via digital streaming services, which is what happened to Rebecca Black. On February 10th, 2011, Friday exploded onto the internet. A heavily auto-tuned, deeply silly pop song counting down the days of the week with such profound lyrics as, everybody's looking forward to the weekend, fun, 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 fun. <laughs> It was accompanied by this overproduced and very awkward video hosted on the Arc Music YouTube channel. Look, exploded onto the internet is probably a bit of an overstatement. The video's first month online was pretty uneventful. But after it was picked up by a couple of middle-aged male comedians on Twitter, it suddenly jumped from being something that, like, a couple of Rebecca Black's family members had watched to something that was being lauded as the worst song and music video ever made. <laughs> it was spreading like wildfire and suddenly Black had the most disliked video on YouTube, bumping out Justin Bieber's Baby with 1.192 million dislikes. She'd redefined the concept of virality and suddenly the internet was awash with dubstep covers, death metal covers and covers by late night talk show hosts. 
Black herself was also inescapable. She popped up on Billboard charts, morning and late night TV, and in Katy Perry music videos, which is a lot for a 13-year-old. But over the past few years, Black has slowly been reinventing herself. Friday is still her most streamed song with over 12 million streams on Spotify, but she's writing and releasing new music independently, she's been touring, and she's got a YouTube channel that's all her own. So I thought on the 10-year anniversary of Friday, we could take a little look at the rehabilitation of Rebecca Black. What does it mean to be one of the first people to almost have your life ruined by YouTube virality? Why do we look back so fondly on the bad pop stylings of a tween? And, perhaps most importantly, do we chill in the front seat or do we kick it in the back seat? Which seat should we take for maximum partying, partying, yeah? Let's get into it. I think to fully understand how we let a song by a literal child become so universally loathed she ended up being homeschooled, we've got to cast our minds back to the internet in 2011. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that long ago, but trust me, time has soldiered on at a rate that is beyond my comprehension and yours. We're just all slowly marching towards the void. Which means you probably don't remember the internet being that different in 2011, but it was. Importantly, at that point, content creators on YouTube's platform had only been able to monetize their videos and receive advertising revenue for around four years. It might seem like a trivial fact, but it meant that at that point, YouTube sensation wasn't like an actual viable occupation that people had parlayed into McMansion's millions of dollars and many, many makeup lines. In fact, if you look at retrospective interviews with early success stories from the platform, a lot of them talk about the first times they integrated branded content into their videos and the incredible backlash they received from their audiences for doing so. Where we now just kind of accept that even if we have an ad blocker, someone is likely to try and sell us a VPN service or a meal subscription box as part of the video content, in 2011, viewers were automatically suspicious of anything that was deemed to be out of step with the perceived authenticity of YouTube's content. On top of this, in 2009, Vivo was launched as a joint venture between Sony, Universal, and EMI to push out their music videos as premium content for advertisers on YouTube, with revenue being split between Google and Vivo. In 2013, 90.3% of views on music videos went to the 2.5% of artists categorized as mega, mainstream, and mid-sized. And perhaps unsurprisingly, those artists are largely signed under the big three record labels that I just mentioned. <laughs> What this meant was that while the majority of the billions of hours of actual content on YouTube is user-generated, for a long time, and perhaps still to some extent, people associated music content on the platform with big-budget, big-label productions. They expected musicians on YouTube and their accompanying videos to be either slick and well-produced or obviously DIY in a way that heralded them as not being big or mainstream. What's weird about Rebecca Black's Friday is that it kind of sits somewhere in the middle. The song and video were produced as part of a package deal with a now-defunct company called Arc Music Factory. Arc's premise was that kids, or like 
realistically their parents, paid between $2,000 and $4,000, and the company would write and record a song and produce an accompanying music video. As you would probably expect, the results are (laughs) varied at best, but for all intents and purposes, they were professionally recorded and produced, making them slicker than the average DIY piece. Friday didn't look or sound like a teen in their bedroom mucking around with recording software and a video camera. And it wasn't. This led to what musicologist Paula Harper calls context collapse. Essentially, when audiences approached Friday and by extension Rebecca Black, the YouTube environment at the time meant that rather than approaching this as a comparatively low-budget production by a glee-obsessed 13-year-old whose parents wanted her to have a good time, they approached it as a proposed competitor to other pop products on the market. It was seen as an attempt to buy a career for a spoiled rich kid that was encroaching on an organic creative space. At least part of the scathing response to its overall presence on YouTube was due to an audience already wary of being sold to, believing that they were being sold to. But Rebecca Black wasn't the only teenage girl to put out a song through ARC Music, so why Friday out of the hundreds of music videos on the ARC channel? Is it really the worst song on there? (laughs) Look, I'm not a music guy, I couldn't tell you. All of them seem equally bad, but none of them inspire incredible vitriol in me because I have at least two functioning brain cells. (laughs) What I can say is that the beauty of internet virality is that Rebecca Black has told this story hundreds of times to hundreds of media outlets as an adult. One of the things that really stood out to me in a retelling to BuzzFeed was that initially Ark had sent her a song about having a crush on a boy, and she'd rejected it because the concept of dating and boys was scary. You know, because she was 13. And I mean, also now a lesbian, but mostly at that point, 13. So instead, they sent her Friday, which she said resonated more with her because it was about meeting friends and hanging out. So that was what she eventually went with. Now, not all of ARC's videos are up anymore. I think because artists are like, parents of artists had the option of taking them down, but of the ones that are still up and feature young women, much of the content is about crushes and boys and dating, which I think audiences are probably more willing to let slide because we expect teen girls to be kind of adult-like, or at least pretend to be kind of adult-like. But Friday doesn't really give you space to forget that Black is a teenager because all of its subject matter points to it being by a teen about being a teen. So while it may not be the worst thing ARC ever produced sonically, it was a perfect target for the eye of middle-aged male comedians because what's worse than a teen girl? A teen girl who isn't playing into some Lolita fantasy, probably. But ironically, all the hatred drove the song onto the charts, ultimately doing the thing that people were mad about in the first place, which was giving Rebecca Black the footing for a musical career. Which brings me around to the reinvention of Rebecca Black. Over the past decade, something kind of fascinating has happened. People love Friday now. Not even ironically. It definitely started as irony. As the video gained traction, 
While comedians of the awful Daniel Tosh variety were making a series of hideous jokes about it, the funniest position that you could possibly take on something so universally reviled was to declare it good and worthy. These takes started pretty early. Um, in March 2011, right as the We All Hate a Teenager train really started to gain momentum, Rolling Stone had already run a piece by Matt Perpetua called Why Rebecca Black's much-mocked viral hit Friday is actually good. The premise of the article is that Rebecca Black's bizarre tone and the song's mimicry of pop music staples forces us to reckon with the formulaic pop as a whole, and that its delivery and packaging unintentionally hits the same comedic notes as SNL music sketches like those produced by Lonely Island. Which is <laughs> certainly a take, um, and definitely one of the kinder ones that emerged at the time. But that logic doesn't really explain the enduring popularity of the song. I actually think as we came to better understand the nature of viral fame and internet celebrity, we started to gently unpick some of that context collapse I mentioned earlier. We've talked about the weirdly amped up misogyny of entertainment media from like 2006 to 2012 on the podcast a few times. Before society managed to land on the concept of influences, lots of women in music or movies around this time were hung out to dry in tabloid media for the crime of being too visible. And now that the rest of the world has caught up, a lot of those celebrities are having career renaissances. Girls who were too young at the time to fully absorb or internalize the narratives being pushed about these women are now revisiting them as icons. Hypervisibility can't really be a crime anymore when it can be moulded into a career on YouTube or Instagram. We understand now that virality is both unplanned and can either make or break you. And now that we have that knowledge, we can better appreciate the context of Friday as something that was unplanned and effectively made by a child. No tricks here, just kids chilling in the front seat, kicking in the back seat, partying, partying. Yeah. But I think once you've thought through that component, you sort of swing back around to like an unironic defense of Friday. It doesn't magically make the song good. It's still lyrically as silly as it ever was. But if you're accepting that it's not some sort of attempt to buy fame, it's much more likely to inspire like a 1500 word love letter than it is a mean comedy sketch about the idiocy of teen girls which in turn has allowed Rebecca Black to build a sustainable online presence. Early internet examples of video virality were often really removed from their creators or the people who were in them weren't interested in engaging with their newfound fame. Now that we have a stronger understanding of internet virality, there's been a recent trend with a lot of millennial media outfits where they dig back through memes to get to the bottom of the story. BuzzFeed has a series called I Became a Meme, which talks about those people whose faces have become visual shorthand for feelings on the internet. Uh, Advice has a similar series which digs into like niche digital happenings and really big viral moments. Rebecca Black has appeared on both of those channels attempting to explain Friday. We actually have her live and in person to tell us about how sudden and accidental fame impacted her as a teenager. In her own words, she didn't do the video thinking that it was going to be the thing that starts everything. It was a fun thing to do that she didn't have any creative control over, 
and which she thought only her grandma would see. And when it started to take on a life of its own, she was suddenly confronted with adults promising to help her capitalise on her fame. What stands out about Rebecca Black is her decision to engage with Friday on her own terms. She didn't hire a team of people to help her with the influx of opportunities that came her way following the video's success, which makes sense because she was a child and her parents were doctors. No one had entertainment industry experience. And she admits to feeling really naive and ashamed when confronted with all these adult opinions of her. Which is why it's so incredible that she not only fired her entire team at 16 and started uploading videos to YouTube, but continued working on her own music. The audience build has been slow but steady, and she has a reasonably sized internet fan base, large enough to keep her employed. Black's fan base is largely people her own age, which means that when she was swamped with hate throughout that decade, they were too young to absorb a lot of the narrative that was being pushed about her. So what they get instead is a really good-natured and honest version of events in Black's voice. She got the big break that a lot of kids dream about, but she's upfront about the cost. It's authentic and surprisingly unguarded given the amount of vitriol that came her way at such a young age. It probably helps that she's also actually a reasonably talented musician. For its 10-year anniversary, she released a hyper-pop remix which featured uh, Dorian Electra, Big Frida, the Queen of Bounce, uh, and 303, who you may remember from their early noughties hits and the iconic lyric, Tell your boyfriend if he says he's got beef, that I'm a vegetarian and I ain't fucking scared of him. That's a combination which displays an incredible amount of curatorial ability, even if it is a hyper-pop nightmare. On a side note, one of the reasons that I know I'm getting old is that I know what hyper-pop is, and I wish I liked it, because it seems cool, but I actually just think it's very noisy and I'm so tired. (laughs) Young enough to know hyper-pop exists, old enough to wish the kids would just be quiet for like one goddamn minute. That's the uh, duality of being in your 30s, kids. (laughs) Anyway, she can sing. She's making gay pop songs about getting back with your girlfriend. It's all very wholesome and stylish. And most importantly, it feels like it's coming from Rebecca Black. All this is to say, happy birthday, Friday. And congratulations to Rebecca Black for managing to survive a viral shitstorm and become a well-adjusted, well-dressed, almost 24-year-old. I'm not even being a little bit sarcastic when I say that. It's genuinely extremely impressive. So that was our uh, revisitation of Friday. I would be lying if I said it hadn't been in my head for a week. Like, I've just been walking around being like, Friday, Friday, gonna get down. Uh, <laughs> Lyrically, it may just be a list of the days of the week, but it is certainly catchy. If you would like to discuss either hyperpop or your preference for front seat versus back seat in the lead up to the weekend's fun, 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 talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. Peace.